Well, it was VBS this week, so I thought I'd just kind of sit and listen to the songs, right? Well, good morning again. Uh, it is good to be with you in the presence of God, to be in worship on this kind of little bit of foggy, sleepy, late Sunday in July kind of thing. But we'll pray that the Lord's Spirit will, um, will, will guide us this morning. This is an extraordinary text that, uh, that we're going to look at today. Um, when I saw that this was what was assigned to me, my eyes popped because I've wanted to preach on this text for a long time and had never had the chance. So hopefully my excitement will engender conciseness and focus rather than diverse, you know, just whatever, whatever. <laughs> the passage needs a little context uh, before we get to it. It's very poetic. It's very moving but it comes toward the end of the book of Hosea. And some of the things that, I'm not assuming that everyone would know exactly some of the context around Hosea, so I think this might be helpful. Sometime before 750 uh, BCE, right, Hosea is a prophet, and he is called to serve as God's voice to Israel, specifically the northern half of Israel, or the, what is called the northern uh, kingdom. Contrary to what you might think when you read the book, this was a time of apparent political security and economic prosperity. So it wasn't a downturn, it was an uptick. But there is a crisis. The crisis that Hosea addresses is hidden to most people. It is a sickness that lies hidden, but to his and God's eyes only. This called for a very radical and crazy and shocking move that would awaken people to the realities of what was going on deep within their hearts and within the culture. God tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. Gomer, go and marry a prostitute and have children with her. Gomer runs away. He goes back he go, he runs, she runs away. He goes back to her. And then she runs away again. And then he goes and pleads with her to return, only to run away again. There are children involved in this family, the paternity of which is deeply in question. Hosea possibly has children that he is to take care of that are not his own. This is a weird way to start a prophetic book in the Bible, right? <laughs> the question is, is are, are they his own or are they not? And is God still Israel's lover or not? There's this pointed formal um, uh, accusation in chapter 4, verse 1. It basically forms the, the context for the judgment of the prophecy. We could kind of say it's somewhat like our own. He says, there is no trustworthiness, no loyalty, no knowledge of God in the land. Instead, there is only cursing, cheating, murdering, stealing, and adultery. That's what breaks out in the land. And remember, this is in a prosperous society. In the chapters that follow, Hosea, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uncovers through a poetic means, evidence of evil and unjust deeds done among the priests, the pastors of the people, among the leaders of the people, 
and among the people themselves. And it reveals that the covenant that God has made with Israel is deeply wounded, if not completely uh, broken. The crisis, this crisis of God and the people is embodied in Hosea's questionable family with this you know, stigma over it. Yahweh tries everything to wake the people up to see how much their love is like the morning mist and that God's is not like the morning mist, but nothing works. This relationship appears to be broken beyond repair. The kingdom of princes, priests, and people will be carried off into exile and death. And chapter end, chapter 10, ends with these ominous words. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. And now we're ready to read chapter 11. You can uh, read along, uh, you can read, not silently as I read, but I'm just going to read these first 11 verses, which is the chapter of 11 of Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and, feed th and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt and Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities. It consumes their oracle priests and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. And to the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma, and how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a mortal, the Holy One who is in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord who roars like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. O Holy One in our midst today, O Holy One in our midst, today, this hour, and this moment, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead us to the holy place of understanding and wisdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's a quick outline for the poetry of this passage. It starts off with 
a divine heart that's broken and looks to the past at how when love was alive and well and now is gone and lost. In verses 3 to 4, there's a picture of tender love and affectionate care topped off by that image of picking up an infant and holding a child to your cheek, the tenderness, the affection. In 5 and 7, you see that there, the, the prophet speaks of a people who are devoured and consumed by their wanton loves. And then 8 and 9, which is where I'm going to focus our, our uh, attention, the divine heart in pain, wanting to give up, but can't. 11 through 10, the people will hear and return. There's hope, there's restoration in this passage. But there's more to this passage than simply saying, oh, that's great, there's hope there. When you go through a poem, right, there are moments when there's a twist, there's a turn, there's a shift, there's a shake inside you that the poetry is meant to do to change you to enliven you, to waken you. And this does it, and it does it in verses 8 and 9. This whole passage is full. It's deep and raw. I've been meditating on this for over 30 years, what this means. And it all started when I took my Hebrew exegesis class in seminary. And we translated this book together. And I remember the day when Dennis McGarry, my Hebrew instructor, professor, was stood up in class and he started reading this passage in Hebrew. And he got to this point and he just stopped. And he looked down. And then he just looked up at us and he just went, what is going on here? It struck me and has lived with me ever since that there's something that explodes in this passage if you let it. And I hope to be able to at least touch a little bit on that this morning. There's so much I would list to focus on, but I won't. God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? That is a reference to the North, people in the northern kingdom. How can I give you up, O, 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 o Zippo, um, what's, what's, I can't remember. Somebody help me out. How can I give, oh, um, no, no, how can I get, oh, Israel. Boy, my brain is like fried. How can I give you up, O Israel? Have you ever really wanted to give up? I mean really give up. When you wanted to just quit, where you just wanted to say with life, I'm done, it's over. I've tried everything. I've lost heart. I'm abandoning whatever I'm doing. I'm ceasing, I'm ceding, I'm giving it over. I'm yielding, I'm throwing in the towel. Have you ever wanted to give up? Have you ever wanted to give up on politics? Have you ever wanted to give up on doing justice? Have you ever wanted to give up on building community? Have you ever wanted to give up on religion? Have you ever wanted to give up on Jesus? Have you ever wanted to give up on God? Have you ever wanted to give up on a loved one? And have you ever wanted to give up on yourself? It's a painful moment when you get there. And yet, I don't know how we mature in our faith without going through these, these moments. Hopefully, this text will help us. What is extraordinary about this text is the difference between it and what has gone before. Previously, God was speaking to the people 
through Hosea. Now, there's no outward speech. And all that God can do is turn within. How can I give you up is God's question to God. Not God's question to anyone else. No longer is the Lord interrogating the priests, the princes, and the people. But God is now interrogating God's very cause for loving itself. That's what's startling about this passage. We often don't think in those terms. Yahweh, our God, is not questioning the faithfulness, the loyalty, and the knowledge of God among the people, but is questioning God's self about faithfulness, loyalty, and a true knowledge of what God is and what God's supposed to do. How can I give you up? Can only be answered from within God. This is truly striking, and rarely do we see such a revelation of God's inner life in relationship to humanity as we see in Hosea 11. I want to read 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admon? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those were cities near Sodom and Gomorrah. They were destroyed. Here, I think, is kind of the focus and the fulcrum of what is to happen. In light of this question, my heart recoils within me, the NRSV translates. My compassion grows warm and tender. What does this mean? There's a shift going on here. There's a change. There's the movement from, from, from judgment that has come upon the people now to asking internal questions, God asking questions of God, and then something's going on inside of the divine heart. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. What does this mean? Does it mean that God is having second thoughts about punishing the people? Hmm. Does it mean that God is withdrawing from care and involvement with the people, the covenant and the care of the world itself? The word for recoil in the Hebrew means to turn or to overturn or even to churn. The word means to turn back on against itself. It often has a negative connotation. Like butter being churned, the divine heart is being churned, turned, overturned, back on itself. Almost as if like boiling water that's rolling in a pot, right? It's not boiling out over the pot, it's roiling in the pot. And I'd like to think that what's happening is that God's righteous anger is being turned back upon God's righteous anger. Such that I want to punish these people. I want to teach them the lesson because I know what good they need and what they can get from what I have to give them, but they will not come. But that's all been ineffective now. There's nothing, no way to turn that. And God's turning back on God's self. God is in turmoil within. That is a powerful, emotional metaphorical picture to give as a part of divine revelation in Hosea. Oftentimes, we want it just all clean and clear. God loves us, bing, go. God judges us, bing, go. But we realize life isn't like that. Life is many times there's turmoil and storm internally, right? So what is being revealed here about God? I kind of look at it as God is in a boil, or God's in a churn over the situation and cannot give up. There's no regulating, there's no incentivizing, there's no punishing or shaking of the finger that will bring forth any new behavior, right? 
Whatever is to be resolved about giving up or not giving up will come from within the heart of God and nowhere else. Redemption must come from the heart of God. Thirdly, that within the divine heart, righteous anger is up against righteous anger and it's turning back on itself and in some way cancels itself out and makes way for a deep, new, inner resolve to, to love with compassion. Even God has to find a deeper place from which to live and work, it would seem. In verse 8, it says, my compassion grows warm and tender. Two things here, the compassion or the tenderness, and then the growing warm. I would translate the growing warm as being deeply stirred, a deeply stirred passion to love from within a broken relationship. And that love comes from a deep place within the human heart. This is a love that is stirred not from a memory of the past. It's not stirred from a thought towards the future, which would give hope, but from the difficult present within. And to move beyond giving up from there. This word is used in Genesis 43:30 of Joseph, who when he saw Benjamin after all those years of being in Egypt, and Benjamin being coming down and seeing him, his own blood brother, it says that with Joseph hurried out because he was overcome from within with stirrings of affection for his brother and he was so about to weep and he didn't want to let them know who he was at that point. And so Joseph goes into a private room and weeps. It's a word that goes along with weeping. It's a word that goes along with deep movement from within. Many, there's not many times in our lives where we may experience this. But it's very significant when everything seems to be lost. What to do? You want to give up. You can't give up. You want to give up. I can't give up. I want to give up. I can't give up. And quieting that all down, back in on itself, turning over itself, it becomes real quiet. And something springs up differently. We realize here that God is God and no mortal, as it says. But it's also easy to look at that and keep it as, an, as a view that God is distant from us. But rather than that, I would encourage us, given the tenderness of these metaphors in the revelation to Hosea, would it not be better, given this uh, prophetic look into the divine heart, to see the one who decides not to come in wrath? That is the one who is in our midst. That is then. How many of us how many of us go for years thinking God is mad at us, carrying that in deep places in our soul? God is not mad at any of us, never will be. It would be a blessing to know not simply that God is not mad at us, but that transcendence is always intimate and seeks intimacy. If you ponder this passage for a while, you might also see this. We have here, and I think this is significant, the prophetic signs of incarnate love. That this that is within God cannot but become human and take on human suffering. And this is the love that emerges in the story of Jesus. When I think of Hosea, I think of Jesus outside the city of Jerusalem, going, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen 
gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You just weren't willing. And then the pain. I want to give up, but I can't give up. And he goes into the city anyway, which is, which is his end. So what can we draw from this extraordinary text for our times? I'd like to just put these thoughts out to you. One is God does not give up. Although I think there is some things that God does give up on, and it's a process throughout our lives. We experience it that way. God gives up on trying to, to move us around as a bunch of robots, right? And God gives up on trying to use a lot of laws to get us to do good things. And God stops trying to regulate at some point, and we begin to see that there are bigger and better things in, good for, in terms to do. But I do think that when we want to give up, we must make a decision, or at least we're being brought to a decision point. We, cannot, we can't stir and storm and spend our time uh, focusing on what's not changing outside of us. I think there is a lesson here that God goes within and that the answers are going to come or the resolutions are going to come from within, not the circumstances changing from without. Right? We, like God, must enter territory within and let the God who does not give up show us how it's done. I can't tell you how it's done. It's done. Because in some of you know that there are times when you've had to give up and you couldn't give up. And somewhere from within, something came into that space. Which leads me to this next point. That the text is meant to open up a space in us. Where the conditions and qualifications of love, mercy, and justice that we may put on other people, put on the world, put on ourselves, where they implode or they collapse. And in that space, a spring of compassion flows, and this flowing is how we go on when we want to give up. But I also think it's true, and it's very healthy to put it this way as well. We always have the option of giving up. It's live option. We always have the option to give up on a loved one, the church, the Christians, God, our community, religion, doing justice, loving mercy, even on ourselves. It's not heretical to throw it out there, to say it's always an option to give up. The door's open. You can walk through it. There's only one question. But at what cost? But at what cost? I know this has been kind of a heavy sermon, and I'm going to finish it now. With something a little fun. It was VBS week anyhow, so... Pardon the anthropomorphic nature of this. I'd like to think along these lines, at least for fun, that God wakes up one morning after a good night's rest, right? Comes down, stares, ready to have some coffee, sit and read the newspaper. Oh, no, not the newspaper, the internet. Oh, no, not the internet, no. God wants a quiet morning, right? Because God deserves a quiet morning, a good rest and all that. And comes down the stairs and the house, the house, the kids are outside playing already. And the house is an absolute mess. Not only the kitchen, but the living room, the dining room, the bathroom, the toilet paper, everywhere. All this kind of stuff. And God goes around the house and just looks at this. And... And he just goes, you know, for the umpteenth time, we've talked about this. We have rules about this. 
right? We've got agreements about this. What is so wrong? God is frustrated and angry. And his eternal wonder just kind of says, how can I cure these wandering hearts who won't listen? How do I make these people, these kids, how do I get them to understand? It's good to have no toilet paper all over the bathroom. It's good to have a clean home. Okay, a mess every once in a while. Grace looks over a lot of things. But come on, the wantonness must stop. But how will I get them? And begins to say, how how will I get into their hearts and change them? That really is the question, isn't it? As much as we'd like to think about restructuring society, and we need it, we can't regulate people into good behavior, ourselves included, and God realizes this too. And so I was just, I was so happy with the, with the, the pardon, uh, the word from, of pardon that Kathy read, because it goes along with this. And I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Dear brothers and sisters, siblings in Christ, may it be so for us today, ever and always. Amen.